Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, a Miami judge today dismissed one of the voter fraud prosecutions pushed by Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, a significant development that comes as cases draw scrutiny. At a press conference back in August, Governor DeSantis announced the arrest of 20 people for alleged voter fraud that had been swept up in a probe carried out by the governor's new Office of Election Crimes and Security. Flanked by law enforcement officers at that press conference, DeSantis said they would, quote, pay the price. Yeah, and now this week, new body cam footage from the arrests shows the confusion and the anger of people who were swept up in this sting and arrested. The arresting officers were almost apologetic. The video was obtained by the Tampa Bay Times and the Miami Herald through a public records request and caused a stir on social media. Here's Tampa resident Tony Patterson. Apparently, I, I guess you have a warrant? For what? I'm not it's sure. for voter stuff, man. For voters. It's, it's uh, what it uh, is. It, I think the agents with FDLE talked to you last week about some voter fraud, voter stuff, when you weren't supposed to be voting, maybe. Voter fraud. Let, let's walk why, over to my car, okay? Why y'all doing this now, and, and this happened years ago? I don't know. I, I have no idea, man. This is crazy, man. Well, that footage shines a light on some of the confusion surrounding Florida's laws restoring voting rights to convicted felons after they've served their sentences. Amendment 4, which passed in 2018, restored the right to vote for most Floridians with past convictions, but a subsequent bill which required felons to pay back all fines, fees and restitution before they could vote added a layer of uncertainty. We can join the conversation. Have you seen the footage? What are your thoughts on it? Uh, perhaps you are in the situation of wondering about your responsibilities and rights to vote. Give us a call, 305-995-1800, 305-995-1800. Send us a tweet, at Florida Roundup. Let's begin with reporter Lawrence Mauer of the Tampa Bay Times. Lawrence, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Well, first of all, Lawrence, you've got some breaking news on this story. What's the latest? Yeah, uh, of these 19 people arrested for voter fraud by Governor Ron DeSantis's administration, uh, they had their first they had their first legal challenge in court this morning in Miami, and a Miami judge, basically on a technicality, a very significant technicality, said that the Office of Statewide Prosecution, who is bringing all these 19 cases, does not have jurisdiction to bring them. Mm -hmm. And that's basically because, as this judge says, that, you know, these crimes, the statewide prosecutor has to has to handle crimes that involve multiple jurisdictions. And in these 19 cases, the Office of Statewide Prosecution is arguing that when you fill out a voter registration card with your local county supervisor, the county supervisor sends that to Tallahassee for verification. OK, mm -hmm. and that's how you get your voter ID card. Well, that act, sending the ID card from your local county to the state counts as multiple jurisdictions. And the judge today said that that's no good. That doesn't count. That's that's not a basis to bring charges. So the state said they will appeal. But this so far, if other judges around the state agree in these other 18 cases, that could be a very significant, significant uh, challenge for uh, DeSantis's case here. Just a clarification to Lauren, some, I'm reading in some reports that it was 20 arrests, not 19. Is it, it's 19, though. Well, the original, it's its a little unclear. There was another mm -hmm. arrest made yesterday, but that's a, that's a different situation um, than the other 18, uh, the other 19 cases. Originally, DeSantis said there were 20. Um, mm -hmm. They only released 19 names. Presumably the one yesterday is the 20th case. But, you know, the other 19 were arrested back in August. So it's a little unclear if we're talking about 19 or 20. There have been 20 people arrested by the office. 19, though, are in this different situation, the kind of the right. same situation. The one yesterday is different. Right. I mean, there's there's multiple layers of 
um, murkiness to this case, right? And, and speaking of that, what did people being arrested say about why they thought they were allowed to vote? Well, pretty simple. They, in some cases, were encouraged to vote by people at the DMV. Um, in all cases, they fell out of a reg registration card and a registration form and were given a voter registration card, which presumably, uh, you know, for a lot of these people, they assumed that they could vote. And when they went mm -hmm. to vote, they were not stopped from voting. This was back in 2020, uh, the 2020 election. And so, you know, it, it, I've, I've heard comparisons to, you know, if you if a 13 year old was given a driver's license, I mean, who's at fault? The DMV, right. which gave the license or the 13 year old who is now driving the streets? There was I mean, the, the footage kind of reveals a little bit about what may be going through the minds of the arresting officers, too. Right. I mean, you, you noted in your story that they're almost apologetic when they made those arrests. Uh, in one case, it almost seems like they're kind of walking through one of the people being arrested, what their argument or their defense might be. Just talk a little more about what you heard from that aspect of the body cam footage. Yeah, there were a couple of pretty extraordinary exchanges. Um, in one case, like you mentioned, uh, this one guy, Nathan Hart, he he's being arrested. He's a convicted sex offender, which he is not allowed to vote uh, in Florida. Nevertheless, he was given a voter ID card and he says, hey, you know, I went to the DMV and the person there said, hey, are you, have you are you registered to vote? And Hart tells him, uh, no, I'm pretty sure I can't because I'm a felon. And the person mm -hmm. says, well, you know, just fill out this form and if you can vote, they'll give you a card. And if you can't, they won't. And yeah. he's telling police officers this. And the, one of the officers who's there arresting him uh, says, well, that sounds like a defense. Know what I mean? That sounds like a loophole to me. And which, you know, how often do you hear a police officer giving legal defense advice to a person there, to a sex offender that they're arresting right there on the spot? pretty extraordinary. And in another case, you can overhear a police officer telling someone on a cell phone that, you know, I've never seen these charges before in my entire life, kind of scoffing at at uh, these charges here. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's clear that the the officers here seem maybe skeptical. We're talking with Lawrence Maurer with the Tampa Bay Times Miami Herald about new footage which was released this week following a public records request from the Times and the Herald showing, uh, revealing a little more about the arrests that were made in a alleged voter fraud um, case that was brought by uh, the DeSantis administration. Uh, let's take a call in here. Uh, David calling from Newport Richard. Newport Richie, rather. David, uh, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, I just have a, a basic question. It's like, who cannot see this for what it is? It's more like, I think everybody can, but and the people with wearing those red hats and screaming mega and stop the steal, you know, that it was tar they were the target to say there is hmm. the possibility of election fraud out there or, you know, people voting that shouldn't be, where at the same time, as you just described with the gentleman you were talking to, uh, it sounds like these people were led to believe that they could get a, a voter ID card. Who, who would have let them vote if they didn't have one, is what I'm asking, I guess. And anyway, they reached the right audience, and uh, DeSantis is pulling all the tricks that he can to, you know, especially coming up on the uh, midterm stuff. So it's it's so damn obvious. That's all I can say. And I'll let you talk. Okay? Well, Thank you so much for your call, Steve. Lots of calls and tweets coming in. Give us a call at 305-995-1800. Send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Lots of tweets. Sharon tweets the show. The governor should have to pay all of the fees for these wrongful arrests. This is an overreach of power, she says. Another tweet looks like an election stunt by the governor. For more on the fallout, we welcome Abdila Skier, voting rights policy strategist with ACLU of Florida. Abdelia, your organization is calling these arrests, and I quote, a grotesque abuse of power. Your reaction to the arrest this week? Hi, thank you for having me. And well, you described it right there. It's a grotesque abuse of power. It confirms exactly what we were um, concerned about when this office was 
first proposed uh, that it would be used as a political tool to intimidate voters. These arrests were conducted in August, if you'll recall, uh, a week before the August primary. And that was a calculated move uh, to send a very specific message. And that message from the state was, if you have a felony conviction, regardless of whether you've served all terms of your sentence, if you paid all your fines and fees, we want you to think twice about voting. We want you to have an inkling of a doubt so that you have to do a calculus in your head to determine whether you want to vote or potentially risk your freedom. Uh, these, I, I would like to clarify that these aren't voter fraud arrests. These are people who submitted a voter application, had it processed from the state, received a voter card from their county supervisor of elections. It's the same thing as if you applied for a job, the employer calls you, tells you you got the job, you show up and work, and then you leave, and two years later, you get arrested for trespassing on the property. It makes zero sense. Uh, and the, the, the body camera footage that was um, uh, reported on it's revealing the very real and human impacts of these voter uh, anti-voter schemes and the confusion that they create. Uh, and it's devastating our communities. Now, the ACLU is calling on Florida to create a streamlined process for restoring voting rights uh, to people with past felony convictions. Uh, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition issued a statement, meanwhile, about this. They are the, the group that has uh, been able to restore voting rights to people who've uh, been convicted of felonies. They just say, this strengthens our resolve to place people over politics. Uh, and what they're referring to is the, the case that was dismissed by a Miami judge today, dismissing one of the voter fraud prosecutions. How uh, do you see that potentially setting a precedent for some of these other defendants? Yeah, that's a great question. We do hope that other jurisdictions... Um, follow this ruling. Uh, it was um, another example of the overreach happening at the executive level. Uh, these were, uh, you know, Lawrence kind of went over the bizarre legal reasoning that they were using to justify prosecuting these. Normally, these cases would go to the locally elected state attorney uh, to prosecute. But uh, it appears that in, in many of these cases, uh, they did not trust the, the state attorney to um, prosecute in the manner that they chose. Uh, so uh, it is uh, a good sign and um, another example of the uh, overreach. And I want to go back to uh, creating this problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a problem totally of the state's own creation and their failure to provide a streamlined process for a returning citizen to determine whether or not they're eligible to vote. Uh, that, that blame should lie entirely at the state level. Spencer in Jacksonville on the line. Hi, Spencer. You're on the radio. Go ahead. Good afternoon. Go ahead, Spencer. Go ahead, Spencer. Yeah. I had my rights restored, but, you know, I kind of think it's all just really crap because, you know, you get your rights restored, but all you're allowed to do is vote. You're not allowed to carry a handgun, protect yourself. You're not allowed to live in Section 8 housing. So really, this is a mess created, really, by our politicians. Spencer, did you had, when did you, when did you have your voting idea? rights restored, Spencer? A few years ago. And have you and voted since then? Vote. You don't vote? No, and I won't. No. Wow. Uh, okay, what do you think about why that? I? What do you think about but that, Abdila? That's that's a travesty, and that's exactly the intent that the state has. They want people to think twice about voting, uh, even if they may be eligible. They want you to hesitate. They want to make you uh, make force you to make a choice between uh, exercising your right to vote or potentially risking your freedom, um, and uh, it, it's 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 grotesque. Steve in Winter Haven, you've been holding Steve. Hi, Steve, go ahead. Yes, uh, uh, like I said, like everyone else has been saying, it's kind of it's kind of obvious, and it, it's a shame that you know that it's not being talked about more. How how obvious and how how you use it as a as, as, as a tool to to punish people when you have people in the villages do the same thing and you know they got slapped on the wrist 
when they intentionally did it. Thanks, Steve. Brian in New Smyrna Beach, a former police officer. Hi, Brian. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, my opinion about this is it's just a complete injustice. I mean, I was a police officer for 10 years. I don't know if I would be able to bring myself to make these arrests. Um, I, I believe, you know, voters in Florida enacted a constitutional amendment which restored voting rights to many of these people, and the governor just simply doesn't care. That's not a representative democracy, and I think it's just another political ploy to marginalize uh, minority voters, and it's wrong. Brian, thanks for your perspective as uh, a former law enforcement officer. Lawrence Maurer, the body cam footage that you published, I think, really did help visualize for people these interactions between voters and police and the reluctance of the police seemingly to arrest them. Now that you've broken the the news that the first case has been dismissed, uh, what can we expect next with this story, do you think? Well, you know, all of these cases have to play out. One of your callers mentioned the people in the villages. There were four people in the villages uh, who voted twice, and they were arrested and prosecuted there. Two of them, I believe their cases are still outstanding. Another two uh, were took uh, plea deals, and they had some kind of, the penalty was like community service or something. Um, in these cases, the none of these have uh, been resolved yet. So it's, it's a little apples and oranges so far comparing these to the villages. Um, you know, if the, the judge's decision today uh, plays out in other, you know, in these other 18 cases, that could pose a significant problem for the DeSantis administration. The Office of Statewide Prosecution, which is carrying all these out, reports to the Attorney General, Ashley Moody, who, of course, is, has been supportive of this entire effort. And, you know, there, as, as, uh, Somebody mentioned that, you know, they're kind of at the whim of local prosecutors and local prosecutors have been reluctant to bring some of these cases in Lake County this year. There were six registered sex offenders who voted and local prosecutors declined to charge them. This is basically an identical situation as these 19 people charged by DeSantis and local prosecutors there said, you know, these people were given voter ID cards. They were given all indications that they could vote. They did vote, you know. The law says that you have to willingly violate it. You have to, in other words, know you're committing, you know, you're not you're not eligible to vote and go vote anyway. And as the videos kind of show there, that may not have been the case with these 19 people. You know, these people clearly are confused about why they're being arrested. Some of them, one guy, Tony Patterson, you can kind of hear him say, I didn't even really want to vote. You know, my brother encouraged me to sign up. Mm. Um, you know, I just kind of do what everybody says. And so we're, we're definitely in a, uh, a, a, uh, uh, in a in a place where it, it, it remains to be seen just how this will all play out. It certainly does. Uh, Abdila, what legal remedies will the ACLU or other groups pursue quickly? Well, we don't comment on hypothetical litigation. These are still criminal matters, um, but um, the those charged with crimes uh, have been connected with uh, the resources that they need to get representation. Uh, you mentioned earlier the Florida Rights Restoration uh, Coalition has been uh, working uh, with these returning citizens to make sure that they have the representation that they need. They also have a bail fund uh, for any future arrests, which uh, is another concern. Right. Uh, and they have a petition circulating okay. as well. Lawrence, to change these rules. Thank you. Lawrence Maurer, Tampa Bay Times, Abdila Skier, ACLU of Florida. Thank you both. Thank you. Coming up next, Senator Marco Rubio and Congresswoman woman Val Demings sparring a contentious debate. We'll have that and more when the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio returns.
Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, this week, Florida Senator Marco Rubio met on the debate, the debate stage to face his opponent, U.S. Representative Val Demings. And fireworks ensued. What we cannot do is some of these crazy policies that are coming from the left that Congresswoman Demings has supported. You know, she supported a plan to put a, what is it, $10.25 tax per barrel of oil, which would have been 35 cents per gallon more for everyone listening here today. I think it begins by winning this election and getting people like that out of office. Of course, the senator who has never run anything at all but his mouth would know nothing about helping people and being there for people when they are in trouble. And that was just the start of it. Man, oh man, a contentious exchange all night between these two on every issue you care to name. Immigration, inflation and the economy, but much more. Demings went after Rubio particularly hard on the issues of gun safety and abortion. That's right, Melissa. And Rubio, a Republican, as we know, is seeking his third term in the Senate. He has about a five-point lead over Demings, a Democrat and Orlando's former police chief. That said, most political observers believe this race will be close. At the same time, Governor Ron DeSantis has a much more robust lead over his opponent, Charlie Crist. DeSantis and Crist will debate next week. Early voting starts next week across much of Florida with Election Day, November 8th. Join the conversation. Your thoughts on what you saw, what you heard from the debate between Val Demings and Marco Rubio. Uh, give us your thoughts, too, on the matchup between Charlie Crist and Governor DeSantis. Call us 305-995-1800. Send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. We're joined now by Bianca Padro-Ocasio. She's a political writer with the Miami Herald. And she has some more about the Senate and governor's races. Bianca, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you had a list of questions for Rubio and Demings that you wanted the candidates to answer ahead of the debate. Questions on disaster relief, inflation, abortion, immigration. Uh, let's just start with abortion. Did they answer those questions that you had about limitations and exceptions? So I think that was uh, probably one of the more sort of contentious parts of the debate, along with the uh, gun safety portion. But I think that the questions for Rubio uh, were particular to this national ban on abortion that he co-sponsored, uh, as we know. Uh, this particular bill does carve out some exemptions for certain instances of uh, rape and sexual assault. Um, but when he was asked about it at the debate, he sort of sidestepped that. And, you know, he said he wasn't uh, he, he kind of said that it was hypothetical that, you know, it probably wasn't going to get heard on the floor because Republicans don't currently have the majority in the Senate and House. Uh, but of course, you know, there's still a question about whether he would support it, considering he has uh, uh, spoken extensively in this election cycle about um, his position as a as someone who opposes abortion in any instance, including uh in situations of rape, sexual assault, mm -hmm. or human trafficking. Um, for for uh, Val Demings, the question was really more about uh, her being specific about what she means when she says that she supports abortions up to the point of viability. So uh, medical experts, you know, doctors, they, uh, the consensus is that the point of viability of a fetus is 24 weeks. Um, and of course, there are very few states that even allow for abortions after 24 weeks. And they are very rare, you know, less than 1% of abortions, according to the CDC, mm -hmm. happen after 21 weeks. But still, you know, there is a question about, um, you know, does she support uh, abortions and, you know, are there any exceptions in her in her stance uh, after 24 weeks? And she has kind of left that door open uh, and has said that this is really a decision that is up to, you know, the persons involved, including family and, and you know, the doctors and, you know, a person and, and woman and their and her faith. So mm -hmm. uh, there were still some uh, open questions about that in, the, in that section. So I would say that in terms of abortion, uh, there is still some room to be more specific for both candidates. For sure. Now, the the two candidates sparred on immigration and 
uh, depending on where you are in Florida, that's either a big issue or maybe not as important. But what was the takeaway for you from that part of the debate? Sure. So I think uh, immigration wasn't really surprising uh, to me for either candidates. Obviously, uh, Marco Rubio has had um, a pretty sort of hardline uh, stance on this, especially in the cycle. We've asked him, you know, his stance on things like temporary protected status uh, for Haitians and Venezuelans. Um, we've asked Val Demings about, you know, where she stands on the implementation of Title 42, which is this Trump era um rule that that essentially allowed the government to expel uh, some migrants with the the pretext of the COVID-19 pandemic emergency. And she has said that she doesn't support the Biden administration uh, lifting Title 42. She thinks that there need to be, quote unquote, more boots on the ground uh, at the border to process um, migrants. And as we know, last week, the Biden administration essentially expanded the Title 42 rule to include Venezuelan mm -hmm. migrants. And this is a big deal in South Florida and in Miami, where there are a lot of Venezuelans, people who have family members, um, you know, who are fleeing the, the regime. So there's a lot of questions about, you know, what is the, the in-between, right, for somebody like Val Demings, who, uh, you know, sees the sort of uh, support for some Venezuelans to have some restrictions, um, but at the same time understands that uh, there are people who, um, you know, want their families to have a, a more humane process at the border. So that has mm -hmm. sort of been the line that she has towed. Do you get the sense, Bianca, that with what's happened with immigration in the last couple months in Florida, uh, particularly the the flight of migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Is that the kind of thing, do you think, that could change a voter's mind going into the belt box? So I think that it, so far what we have seen in asking people in South Florida in particular, uh, Hispanic voters have really sort of moved to toward the Republican Party on the stands. Uh, there's a desire to really see less of a... Um, less chaos to put it one way on the border sure. in the way that they perceive it but at the same time in south florida uh i think that the the biggest impact on immigration are you know the is a big surge of cuban and haitian migrants who are you know uh, risking their lives at sea to to make it to south florida so i think that there's a lot of um desire to see a more sort of humane treatment of migrants but also a better way to process and, uh, and and for people to have a, you know, the quote unquote, uh, do it the right way to, to mm -hmm. come into the U.S. So I would say that, you know, despite the conventional wisdom that there's a lot of immigrants in Florida and they might want to see less restrictions and seeing people come into the country, uh, I would say that, you know, it's it's more the opposite. I think that there's a lot of desire among Hispanics, especially in South Florida, to to see more uh, security and restrictions to the way that people are crossing the border. Another big issue um, was gun violence and gun safety. That came up during the debate. This is something that's important to voters in Central Florida and South Florida after suffering through the Pulse nightclub shooting of 2016 and then Parkland school shooting of 2018. What, if anything, did you hear about policy positions on that issue? Yeah, so I think that this is probably uh, Val Deming's most powerful part of the debate. Um, this is something, an issue that she has really uh, tried to champion. She's endorsed by the Giffords PAC, um, and she has been a, a you know, big surrogate for that cause to advance um, gun safety measures at the federal level. So I think that this was something an issue that she was able to dominate on. And, you know, she had a, a quote where she uh, kind of confronted Marco Rubio about, um, you know, him, you know, quote unquote, doing nothing despite all the different mass shootings uh, at every level. Um, Marco Rubio was less, uh, you know, supportive of things like the red flag gun law that passed in Florida after the Parkland 2018 uh, mass shooting. So it's it's a little still an issue that both candidates have a lot of, uh, you know, differences on. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that in terms of policy stances, uh, Val Demings had a had a more um, had, you know, a more kind of stable uh, uh, response to that question. I do think that, you know, Marco Rubio, his strength and uh, 
sort of the thing that he's more familiar and, and confident on is foreign policy. And I do think that that policy portion of the debate, um, he really seemed confident and, you know, he was able to uh, kind of dominate and, and answer and confront Val Demings on that. Right, but she did manage to get that dig in about playing at foreign policy, right? Which didn't go too down too well with him. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it was it was it was very uh, it was very contentious, especially. I mean, I think foreign policy is kind of interesting because Marco Rubio obviously is a Miami guy, and this is something that people live and breathe every day in South Florida. Um, but of course, uh, Valdemix has been, you know trying to be more well-versed in in terms of Haitian foreign policy, Cuban foreign policy. Um, so you can kind of see that uh, she definitely was was being prepped for that. 305-995 here statewide, live now on the Florida Roundup as we talk about the Senate race between Marco Rubio and Val Demings. Early voting gets underway in parts of the state Monday. Hugh in Cedar Key. Hi, Hugh. You're on the air. Yes, Hi. What are your thoughts? My impression after, well, my impression after the debate was that Ms. Demings would make a nice, a good next-door neighbor, whereas Rubio, I mean, not sound like a fast-talking quiz kid that would be almost useless as a neighbor. All right. I, I guess we know where you stand. Thank you for your call. Uh, <laughs> Ricardo in Miami. Hey, Ricardo, how are you today? Go ahead. Good. How are you? I'm an independent voter in Miami, and I was surprised that uh, Demings um, didn't really uh, make any connections between, uh, you know, Rubio and Trump and how Rubio is an enabler of Trump by not speaking out against him. Um, I thought it was interesting. You know, they talked a lot about holding China accountable. She could have turned around and said, well, what about holding Trump accountable? There was like no mention of that at all. Hmm. Was that by design? I don't know. What do you think uh, about that, Bianca? Well, I mean, I think that uh, she's definitely tried to paint Rubio as somebody who doesn't show up for his job. Um, and I think that there is more of a of a connection that Democrats have tried to make between uh, Ron DeSantis and, and Donald Trump. But I think that what they're trying to paint Rubio as is, you know, somebody who uh, doesn't show up, who, you know, kind of flip flops on issues, who's unreliable. So not necessarily trying to paint him as an extremist, uh, which is, in, it is an interesting choice as, as the caller points out. But I think that the strategy uh, for Val Demings has been to, you know, highlight her her law enforcement record, trying to paint Rubio as somebody who pretends to be on the side of law enforcement. Um, so that has been more of, of their campaign strategy. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Lots of calls all over the state. Jarrell in Sarasota, Florida. Jarrell, how are you? What are your thoughts? Uh, it's actually Daryl. Daryl. Oh, typo there. Apologize. That's okay. Um, I, I disagree with the analysis of the debate over the abortion issue. I think that Rubio made it darn clear that he would support a law with, with, with no exceptions whatsoever. And he made that clear because he said that, you know, because the only reason I supported the exceptions was because that was that was what was passed. And so he's assuming that never be able to pass anything without exceptions. And that's simply not true, because we saw what happened with Roe v. Wade. I mean, these are politicians that have said for years, I support Roe v. Wade. I support Roe v. Wade. But right now, women in this country have less rights than their grandmothers. They've, they've, he's taking away the rights. And he says, and it's pretty clear that he will take away these rights if given the opportunity. And the only reason he has the exceptions in there is because that's what will pass. And so he expects us to assume that this this type of this is a hypothetical situation that it will never pass. And we saw what happened with Ruby Wade. It is not hypothetical in any way. Thank you. And, and the thing For, is, it Bianca, go ahead. Yeah. All righty, Bianca. Yeah. So I think that there's obviously no doubt that Marco Rubio. Uh, doesn't support any exceptions to uh, to you know a, a bill like this. But the truth is that he did not say that when he was on the stage if he would support a national abortion ban with no exceptions because he said it was a hypothetical bill. Um, so you know he has said that he's personally against those carve outs, um, but and, he, and, he did and not if, say that. Well, and and why we're spotlighting the Senate race is because uh, control of the Senate. Uh, 
is critical to understanding where abortion rights go in America, such a bill could well be introduced in the Senate with Republican control. Correct. And this is something that he has co-sponsored as a, as a Republican in the Senate. So there is no doubt that this is where he stands personally. Okay. uh, Like I said, and running a bit tight on time, but you know, uh, that debate happened and we are anticipating another big debate next week between governor Ron DeSantis and his challenger, former governor, Charlie Crist. Crist is trailing the governor by a much more significant margin than Demings is trailing Rubio. What are you going to be listening for in this debate? So I think this is going to be an interesting one. I mean, there's uh, mounting evidence, like you said, that uh, Charlie Crist is significantly trailing Ron DeSantis for Florida standards where elections are are generally fairly close. Um, But I think that there's probably going to be a few things that that will come up. Obviously, this is coming amid a, a, you know, the recovery of Hurricane Ian, Uh, the the sort of analysis that I have seen is that a, a lot of voters are happy with the way that Governor Ron DeSantis has handled uh, the hurricane response. Um, and also, it, there's there was a, a really significant moment when President Joe Biden came to sort of view the, the Fort Myers uh, destruction, and he was asked by reporters if he thought Ron DeSantis was doing a good job, and he said yes, that he thought that he was doing a good job and was handling it well. Um, And that was pretty notable because how do you, uh, as a Democrat, uh, attack the Republican governor when the president of your own party has said that uh, publicly? So there's just going to be a lot of questions about, you know, how, whether this is actually going to matter for Charlie Chris. This is taking place on the first day of early voting. Over a million people have already cast ballots. Um, So it's pretty late in the game in terms of changing minds. But Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how, um, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis answers questions about where he stands on abortion. Uh, We know that obviously he supported the 15-week abortion ban. Abortion ban. Yeah, and I'm sure that will come up between the two men. I want to thank you, Bianca Padro Acasio, political writer with the Miami Herald. Thanks. Thank you. Still to come, a closer look at Hurricane Ian's multi-million dollar impact on Florida's agricultural sector. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for being with us. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. 
And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, Hurricane Ian caused death and destruction across a wide swath of Florida, killing more than 100 people and putting thousands out of their homes. But the massive storm caused damage in other ways too. It's expected Ian cost Florida's agricultural sector more than a billion dollars. In Highlands County, WUSF reporter Gabriella Paul talked to citrus farmers who are citrus farmers who are tallying the damage from the storm. Here's Lane Dom, whose family has a 250-acre plot in Lake Placid. After the storm, the fruit that's left hanging on the tree was beaten, and any of them that were damaged are also going to be falling on the ground. So I speculate we're going to lose about 70 to 80 percent of our overall crop of early variety fruit. Most farmers do, uh, in a sense, live paycheck to paycheck. There's typically one, maybe two payments a year, and that's after harvest. You won't see that money until they, they pick the fruit and put it in a box. Ray Royce heads up the Growers Association in Highlands County, where he says the damage from Hurricane Ian will be felt beyond the grove. In our county, there's going to be a tremendous economic impact that may well be losing $40, $50 million worth of fruit, and that money won't go into the economy, and growers are going to have to make decisions as to what they can and can't afford to do. Huge, huge economic blow to Florida. You always think of the economy in this state having three stools, tourism, growth, and yes, agriculture. So this is major, folks. This week, the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agriculture released its assessment of the ag production losses associated with Hurricane Ian. They're in the billions. That's billion with a B. We've got an update from Krista Court. She is the director of the UF IFAS Economic Impact Analysis Program. Hey, Krista. Hey, thank you for having me. It's 305-995-1800. We're talking about agricultural losses in the wake of Hurricane Ian. So your report predicts more than a billion and a half dollars in losses to Florida agriculture after Ian. Can you explain what this number is valuing? Sure. So we do a rapid assessment of production losses. So that's the estimated sales revenues that would be received by farmers for this particular um, growing season or market season. Um, The, this, initial number is a credible range on what that might be um, after we gather more information. So the number is $787 million to potentially $1.56 billion. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge hole. How does the Economic Impact Analysis Program go about gathering the information that you need to estimate that amount? Sure. So we keep a lot of baseline information on hand in terms of um, you know, what everyone is growing, where it's located in the state, what it's worth in a particular season. Uh, and then when an event comes through like Hurricane Ian, we collect a lot of event-specific data. So where um, different wind speeds were encountered throughout the state, um, what types of precipitation were falling, where some of those inundated lands might have been, because those are often in uh, not necessarily in the same places that experienced strong wind speeds or heavy precipitation. Um, And then we have an assessment tool that we collect information from the field. Um, So as we heard from uh, the growers earlier, they can report what they're seeing as damaged or lost on their property. Um, We also work with Florida Cooperative Extension uh, faculty from both the University of Florida and Florida A&M University to collect um, that information as they are out there in the fields working with these growers. Now, you looked at damage to crops, livestock, animal products. We're talking about 5 million acres of agricultural lands around Florida. 60% of that was grazing land. Flooding, just picture this, everybody, huge flooding, destroying fields of vegetables, fruit, citrus. And, of course, in addition to the citrus industry, this state produces about 50% of America's tomato crops during the winter months So, Krista, that means uh, people will see uh, an increase in prices of stuff like tomatoes at the grocery store, thanks to Ian. Is that right? Um, So it really depends on the size and scope of the disaster. So when when we do a rapid assessment, we're looking at, you know, what could potentially happen. And we are um, in the the planting or the early stages for that winter crop for a lot of the the fresh fruits and vegetables down in that region. Um, it will depend because we're early in the season, it will really depend on, uh, and we don't have good information yet on, did they delay um, planting or are they potentially able to replant or um, recover 
from some of the damage from that event because they were hit early in that season. So whether or not um, prices will change and whether or not we're at the low end or the high end of that range that we've come up with, there's still a lot of uncertainty out there as to whether they delayed planting, can replant, and that will determine whether, you know, what type of supply is on the market at the end of that season and if there will be a, a change in price. With the Florida Department of Agriculture asking for a federal farm disaster declaration for 17 Florida counties, how would that help beleaguered farmers in the state? Um, so typically, uh, when there is an, an ad, ad hoc disaster relief like that, um, farmers are able to apply for that relief um, if they can show that they were uh, affected by this particular disaster. Uh, as, as an economist, we like to think of that as, uh, you know, one potential source of revenue to make up for revenue they didn't get from, um, that, you know, selling a, a crop that particular season. But it often takes um, a significant amount of time, um, it, you know, from the moment that Florida requests that disaster declaration to, you know, if and when it's approved, um, and then if or when that relief money starts to flow to the state and then to the growers. Um, so it's not often something that will, um, you know, make a difference in the short term, but to potentially will make a difference if and when they receive that payment. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. And we're speaking with Krista Court. She's the director of the UF IFAS Economic Impact analysis program uh, talking about the agricultural impact or the impact on agriculture I should say from Hurricane Ian. A lot of farmers still telling the damage. On that note Krista I mean the prediction at this point is 1.56 billion in losses but it can take a while for farmers to figure out exactly what's going to happen to their crops right so could that number go up? Um, so the the way that we release these preliminary credible ranges is that we account for a lot of that and we take in uh, the information that we've learned from past events. So we've been doing this. I, I've been at the University of Florida since 2016. So we've done um, assessments of both Hurricane Irma uh, in 2017 and Hurricane Michael in 2018. So we factor in um, some historical information in order to come up with this range. We don't typically expect it to go outside of the range. Uh, you know, as we gather more information, we expect it to get more accurate. So we expect that um, 787 million to 1.56 billion to actually narrow and settle on um, what the impacts to, uh, in terms of production losses at least are as we gather more information. The story of Florida's citrus industry in recent decades has been one of kind of shrinking of the footprint, right? You just see, you know, anecdotally the evidence of that when you drive around central Florida, a lot of the groves have been converted into housing developments. I wonder about the long-term impacts of a storm like Hurricane Ian and how UFIFAS and other organizations kind of track that. I mean, would you expect to see some of these uh, agricultural interests, some of these farms saying we just can't sustain our business anymore and, and looking to other enterprises outside of agriculture? Um, so it's certainly possible. Uh, the citrus industry is um, going through what, what we would term maybe you know, compound disaster events. They're battling citrus greening disease. Uh, they were hit hard by Hurricane Irma and now Hurricane Ian. Um, it it there's a lot of factors that would go into that decision. So, you know, we're not collecting information at the level of um, the decision-making level that that I would be able to answer the question as to, you know, how many of them or if they would even do that after this particular disaster. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's certainly a consideration. Yeah, and then, I mean, just kind of thinking longer term, like how, 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 uh, how long looking or how long ranging is your is your research into this? Like, do you, do you go back to these these farms sort of uh, year in year out just to sort of see how things are going? How check check up on what the impact of a of a disaster like Ian or other storms has been? Yeah, we're starting to move in that direction. So we do have a lot of um, research into this area as well because what we would like to be able to use this information for is, you know, how how quickly and accurately can we rapidly assess these so that they can inform the disaster declaration a response and relief a recovery process and but then you know long term how do we make the food system more sustainable 
um, in the state of Florida. We would like to be able to prepare for and mitigate a lot of these losses and learning about um, you know, the full recovery process instead of just assessing what they lost in the immediate aftermath of the storm is a part of that. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking with Krista Court. She's the director of the UFIFIS Economic Impact Analysis Program, talking about the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agriculture and its assessment of the agricultural production losses associated with Hurricane Ian. Those losses pretty huge, uh, $1.56 billion. A pretty enormous uh, impact there, Melissa. Yeah, and as Kristen mentioned, keeping our food system sustainable, well, that's only going to become a more urgent issue uh, as we can expect more and more of these storms. So, Krista, thanks for sharing this with our listeners. And thanks for listening, sure. everyone. The Florida Roundup produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are the producers. WLRN's Director of Radio Operations and our Technical Director is Peter Mertz. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels and Isabella De Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for calling and listening and have a great weekend. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com.